The text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to go there in just a minute. I don't know if you've ever been uh, in a mall in one of those stores or one of those displays and seen something uh, called an auto stereogram. Now, an auto stereogram is this photo. It's like, a, it's like an artistic design with a series of colors and designs, and, and there's supposed to be an image hidden in the auto stereogram. And if you stare at it long enough, you know, you'll see this picture that's supposed to come out at you. It's like an optical illusion. And I was in the mall one time, this is a number of years ago, and people were standing around looking at one of these audio stereograms. And then one by one, you'd hear people pop out saying like, oh my gosh, I can see it, I can see it, I can see, you know. And so I'm standing there staring at this thing and I'm, I don't see anything. And uh, I was kind of tempted to, I was kind of tempted to just, you know, after a couple of minutes be like, oh, I see it, I see it, wow, it's incredible. What are we looking at here? Um, because it's like there's this image that's hidden it, but if you look at it in the right way, it's revealed. And as we come to Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul speaks about the beauty of the gospel, the mystery of Christ, as a mystery that's been revealed. And once it was seen by the apostles, it's like they couldn't unsee it, of course. And once, they, once it was seen... Uh, by the through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they wrote about it and they taught the church about it and they continually went deeper and deeper and deeper into the Old Testament scriptures to see the beauty of this thing that were, for all this time was concealed and now everybody is seeing it clearly. The Old Testament is the Savior concealed, the New Testament is the Savior revealed and that's why we gather on Sundays to celebrate the beauty of this grace in Christ. And so as we come to Ephesians chapter 3, right, right before we read this text, I just want to give you some context. Chapter 1, uh, we see that the Father predestined us to adoption. And then in chapter 2, we see that the Son accomplished our adoption. And now we come to chapter 3, and we see that the Spirit is now applying the depth and the strength and the revelation of the, that revealed mystery of our adoption. We come to Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Now, to me... Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whom we have boldness and we have access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. 
For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far above, more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Now, as we come to this text and unfold the beauty of what Paul's saying and why it matters today, which I think are two great questions we always ask when we come to the scriptures. What does it mean and why does it matter? Here's the sermon in a sentence. We share in the mystery and the ministry and the manifold wisdom of the gospel because the Father planned it, the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit is now applying it. This is what Paul gives us. We all share in the ministry, in the mystery, and the manifold wisdom of the gospel. Why do we share in that? Because the Father planned it, the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit is now applying it. So let's look at this. Firstly, we're going to break it down into those three things. What is the mystery of the gospel? What is the ministry of the gospel? And what is the manifold wisdom of the gospel? So first, let's start with this mystery. In verse 4, Paul specifically says that, He says, if you read this, you'll understand the mystery. So that's good news, because he just plainly gave it to us in the text. We're going to unpack it this morning and see why it's beautiful for the Ephesians and why it's beautiful for us. But he says, if you read this, you're going to be able to understand it. So the reason why that's important is because sometimes we can get caught up, just like the folks in Ephesus, they were Greek philosophers, or Colossians kind of had the same problem. with like, oh, these mysteries, and I wonder pontificate about the universe. And we can, as modern evangelicals in Canada, be like, you know, there's just this mystery in God. What's God supposed to be showing me next? And we can make the mystery of God something outside of what he's actually clearly revealed, which is... It's plainly in the text here, which is what he's given us. The reason why this is important is because the way Paul uses the word mystery in the Greek is he, because they have more tenses than we do, okay, which is weird, but, and by weird I mean complicated and frustrating to study, quite frankly. Uh, but the, it, but it's, it's, an or, it's what they call the aorist tense in Greek, which means it's finished and it's, and it's done and it's perfected. And so when Paul talks about mystery that way, he's not saying like it's this thing that's going to continually loom over the church. So you have to kind of figure out the mystery of God. He's actually saying, if you read this, you're going to get the mystery. He plainly says that. So it's good news for us. So it says that this mystery is revealed too in verse 5. He says it was revealed to the apostles and the prophets. So the church was built on this, the, the revelation of this mystery. And you and I in every church for all of you, you know, until Christ returns again, is built on the foundation of this mystery that was revealed uh, on Christ Jesus. And so I want to just take a minute and talk about why we want to be really specific, as I think it's helpful to be specific about who these apostles and prophets were and what it means to be an apostle and be a prophet. So I'm just going to quickly say this. When Ephesus read this for the very first time, 
they would have read apostles and they would have thought the 12 men that walked with Jesus because that's what an apostle is. Paul calls himself the least of the apostles because he didn't walk with Jesus, but he met the resurrected Christ on the Damascus road. So if you didn't walk with Jesus, you weren't an apostle. Now today we're very liberal with who we call apostles. We can say, well, I met a guy when I was in Ethiopia. I did. He, he planted 21 churches. That's incredible. I mean, if I could plant 21 churches in my lifetime, that would be incredible. But you want to know something? That would not make me an apostle with apostolic authority. I could do the things that Paul did, plant churches, preach, teach, um, lead the church, but I don't have apostolic authority. Nobody does. Only the men who walked with Christ and gave us the scriptures have apostolic authority. They're apostles. The only reason I have any authority standing up here before you today is that God called me to this position, but that's not enough to say God called me, is because if I preach to you the scriptures that were given to me by the apostles, then what I'm saying has authority. But Paul Dunk has no authority. So first of all, when he says that this mystery was given to the apostles, it's not a continued revelation. It's something that Paul's saying, like, it's done, and here it is, and we're going to unfold it. When he says prophets, he's speaking about the Old Testament prophets who were predicting the Savior, and then the, the Savior was presented in Christ, and so now all of the apostles and the New Testament prophets are presenting the Savior. They are presenting what has been revealed. So when we speak about prophecy today, um, we can speak about it in, an, in a very appropriate way in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, where Paul says there's a prophetic gift. There's an appropriate and beautiful prophetic gift, and I'm going to define it, because we, I think we need to be very uh, narrow and faithful to the scriptures, and not just think that anytime we have some sort of a subjective, internal prompting of some kind on a life decision, that we're being prophetic. That's not what being prophetic means. You can be very intuitive. That could be being have, using the gift of the discerning of spirits. That could be um, uh, the Lord giving you a word of wisdom or knowledge in a moment that really serves somebody with some godly wisdom and Christian worldview. Those are all beautiful gifts, but none of those things are prophetic. To be prophetic, Roman, or Revelation 19.10 says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So no Jesus, no scripture, no prophecy. Right? No Jesus, no scripture, not prophetic. And we just, it's that narrow. And it must be that narrow because the whole church is built on that. So, when, so today we can be very vague and somebody can say, you know, God showed me this and I sensed in my spirit that. And then they'll go on to talk about something that was maybe a very wise and good and loving decision. So it was wise and good and loving and perhaps an operation of some of the other gifts, not prophetic. Right? The church wasn't built on our subjective feelings of you know, Holy Ghost life hacks on making good decisions. That's not, that's not prophecy. So we need to understand those things. I think that that's really important because uh, to be consistent, the Old Testament prophets, call, what did they do? They called the church to, to their sin and they predicted a savior. What did the New Testament prophets do? They called the church to repent of their sin and then they presented the savior. So what would the prophetic gift look like today operating in the church? It would look like calling the church to their sin and presenting their Savior. It would have to be theologically and scripturally consistent. So this is, I think, why it's important that we recognize when Paul's like, the mystery was revealed, and here it is, and he's just dialing it in. The church was built on a prophetic word, and that word's name is Jesus. And this is what Paul gives us, so we can rest in this. So in verse 6, Paul says, here's the mystery. And then what he reveals is that 
now the Gentiles are on the identical same terms as the Jews. He says that there's no distinction now between who God's people are. All of us, you and me, here in KW Redeemer, we stand before God and we're united in God and it's this incredible mystery. It's uh, God's mercy minus our merit and grace for the undeserving. But why is this such a mystery? It's a mystery because Paul used the word grace the way nobody else used it at the time. See, if you walk down King Street right now and ask somebody, hey, if, you know, what does it mean to give somebody grace? What they'll tell you is basically the Christian definition of grace. They'll say, well, they don't deserve something and, you know, you take care of them. My most people today in North America would talk about grace that way. What you need to know is when Paul was talking about grace, he lived in an honor-shame culture, Roman-Greco culture. So when they would give somebody charis, which is the Greek word for grace, you give somebody charis, it was, you premeditated in an honor-shame culture, who is deserving of this gift, who is worthy of this gift, and who can thank me loudly and publicly later for this grace, for this gift. So in, in, in the ancient world, you gave grace, you gave gifts to people who, from a social point of view, you, you calculated the ROI, and it made sense to give the gift to them. That's how the word was used. Now Paul starts using it for sinners. So you can imagine why everybody was like, what? That's not who you give grace to. You don't give grace to people that don't deserve it. You give grace to people who, come on, Paul, do the ROI. But the grace of Jesus Christ does not calculate the ROI. That's why Paul says we were dead in our sin when he saved us. We were sinners. That's when grace came to us. Because it didn't calculate the ROI. It said, I'm going to save you in grace. I'm going to reform you in grace. I'm going to do a beautiful thing by grace for you. So this is this mystery of Jesus Christ coming and doing what none of us could possibly ever do for ourselves. Now, think about the social implications of class systems being removed and culture systems being removed. Because again, in the old world, it was like, if you're not a Jew, you're a dog. And now Paul comes along and goes, hey, here's the mystery. There's no more, there's no more Jew and Gentile now. There's no more, you're, God's, you're, this is, you're from this culture and you're God's chosen people. You're from this side of the tracks, you're a dog. Think about the social implications here at Redeemer. When the gospel comes in and now there's no more cultural divisions, and there's no more socioeconomic divisions, and there's no more, oh, you were born there, you're from that family, you're from that side of the tracks, oh, you come from that kind of, a, from a church, oh, you come from no church, oh, you believe, oh, you use this catechism, oh, you use that catechism, oh, you've never, you can't spell catechism, oh, okay, oh, I see how, I see how this works, you, me, right, like I said last week, no, Paul says, here's the mystery, the mystery is this beautiful love, this beautiful grace, this beautiful unity that's deeper than we could ever do because it's only in Christ. And so there's not the global demonstration beyond just KW Redeemer because this isn't about us. It's about what God is doing in the world through his body of Christ in the world of people who now with love and unity can be united to one another and love one another and forgive one another and hate their own sin rather than hating everybody else's sin. It's this beautiful mystery revealed in Christ. This is what, what it is. Think about it this way. How do we understand this? Why was this revealed to the apostles and the prophets? And why does Paul say the whole church was built on what I'm talking about right now? This week, Susan and I celebrated our 20th anniversary. Imagine this now. I wrote, so I wrote her a letter. I wrote her this love letter. Imagine I put that love letter in a clay 
pot and I bury it in my backyard and 2,000 years later, somebody else finds it. And so now they get this love letter and I'm talking about our lives and our kids and history. And I mean, the only, way to, to, the only way to understand that letter would be what theologians call a ministerial use of reason. You'd have to figure out who this Paul Dunk guy was. You'd have to figure out who Susan Dunk was. You'd have to figure out where we lived and the city and the thing and the, who are the kids. I mean, you'd have to do some historical research. You'd have to figure out the context for my letter and what am I really saying? Because I meant something when I wrote it. You don't get to just pick up my letter and 2,000 years later and decide what I meant. I meant something when I wrote it. So the question is, how do you know? And let's just say that for fun, I wrote it in Greek. Because we know that's the most romantic language in the world. You know, agape and the, you know, <laughs> ridiculous. You would have to, you'd have to go to some length to make sure you understood kind of what it was saying. That's a ministerial use of reason. But here's what, when we, when we don't understand the beauty of the mystery in Christ and what prophecy and what the apostles are really pointing at, when we get bored with Jesus and we get bored with the Lord and we want this mystery to mean something else, then instead of using a ministerial use of reason, what is Paul saying? What's the beauty of Jesus? Show me Jesus more. We use what you call a magisterial use of reason, which is bad. A ministerial use of reason means I want to understand the Bible. A magisterial use of reason means I'm going to stand over the Bible. I'm not going to ask this Paul to say, what is this mystery? you?" Have? I want to decide what it is. And this always leads us to... Uh, all wild and zany places as the, as the 2016 North American church. But Paul specifically says this, this mystery is revealed in Christ and it's just gorgeous. And Christ is, the, is, the, is uh, done a beautiful unifying work in people who that would never unify themselves otherwise. Here's the second thing. So that's what the mystery of the gospel is. But what's the ministry of the gospel? Paul gives us the ministry of the gospel in verses 7 and 8. He says... I've been called to the ministry of the gospel. And he just says, he recognizes, I've been called to the Gentiles. He just lays it out. He says this very plainly. I'm supposed to share the beauty of this mystery, Christ's grace for you, his grace for your sin, to the Gentiles. And he just lays it out. So what are the implications of this for us today? If that's how Paul identifies his call, and he says that the call is by the grace and the working of his power, I would submit to you this morning, K.W. Redeemer, that that is also true of you and of me. That in the way that Paul looked at the saving grace in his life, and then he looked around at who he was surrounded with, he said, God's called me to share the beauty of Christ's grace with these people. And for you and for me, we look around at K.W. and we look at our neighborhoods, and it's very simple. We don't wonder about our calling. We don't worry about it because the whole entire church is called to the exact same thing. There's no mystery about your your. Well, what is God's calling on my life? Hey, listen, we're all called to the exact same thing. We share the glory of the grace we're resting in. We share the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of the peace and the forgiveness of our sin with those who we find ourselves surrounded with. Your vocation, if you're here and you're a student, here's the good news about your vocation. You, in, you discover, you develop, and you deploy your God-given gifts, whether that's engineering or math or art or music or I mean, it's a thousand things for the, you that are students that are here. The calling of God on your life is, is uh, that regardless of whatever your vocation ends up being, because of those beautiful gifts he's given to you, you're a minister of grace in that zone and in that field and in that world. 
And so you can rest and relax as you're doing your studies, knowing that you're not, you don't have to worry about being in God's will and figuring out his will. You're standing in his will. If you're united to Christ, you're standing in his will. And so now you get to discover and develop and deploy all those great gifts that he gave you because there's not some sort of a dichotomy like, well, you could, you know, do this particular job or you could do something really amazing for God and spiritual and you could, you know, become a pastor or work in a church someplace. That's ridiculous. Um, if you can think of something else to do with your life other than pastoring, I recommend you do that, quite honestly. But it's when you recognize, no, I can't imagine doing anything else but this particular thing, whatever that is for you, your gift. Then, in a sense, you're like Paul, where you're like, you know what? I'm looking around at the people that I'm surrounded with in my vocation, in my school, for your parents that are here. You just look at the world around you and say, you know what? This is my call, to love these people, to encourage them, to be gracious to them, and to pray for them. And to be, and to, to very much, Lord, you know, would you give me the great opportunity to, to share the beauty of your gospel with them? This is the ministry of the gospel, regardless of our vocation, absolutely regardless of our vocation. I read a book when I was in seminary by a man named Richard Lisher, who wrote a book called In the Company of Great Preachers. And in this book, he's got Spurgeon and Chrysotome and, and, um, Calvin and Luther and Tertullian and Irenaeus and all of these, you know, these great preachers throughout history. He's got a lot of their sermons in there. And as I'm reading this book and I'm reading these sermons and uh, Lisher makes a comment, he says, who is the greatest preacher in all of history? He goes, it wasn't any of these guys. The greatest preacher in all of history was the church. Because as these guys were pointing away from themselves to Christ, the church was equipped and encouraged and nourished in Christ and the church went out and the church shared the gospel in very simple ways and loved people and shared the gospel of grace, this ministry of the gospel, and the church has continually been built. The greatest preacher in history is not your favorite or my favorite. The greatest preacher in this church is not me. It's, it's us. It's the church. I stand here to give the beauty of the scriptures to you, to nourish you and encourage, not so you go out and be, be theologians. Well, some of you are and some of you may be, but that's not the point. That's not the goal. In the same way that Paul recognized the grace in his life and was like, I'm only here because of grace, that propelled him to share the grace. And the same is true for all of you. And so the mystery of the gospel is that Christ did this unity that was way deeper than, than anybody would ever do. And the ministry of the gospel was that Paul looked around and he recognized, you know what, I've been saved by grace, I'm to be a minister of this grace. And what is, so the final thing we want to kind of look at is, what is the manifold wisdom then of this gospel? Well, in verse 9, he gives, he gives the, uh, the mystery very plainly earlier and then he explains, hey, listen guys, hey, listen Ephesus, if you read chapters, you know, one up until this point, you're going to get the mystery of the gospel because I just plainly wrote it out for you. So he says that the beauty of what Christ did. But then he says that God's wisdom, this manifold wisdom, is going to be revealed through the church, through us. How is that possible? And how do we read that and not freak out and be like, oh my goodness, I'm not qualified, I'm qualified, I can't do it. Oh my, oh, oh my, you know, how is he supposed to reveal this through us? How does he do this? Here's the beauty of it. Through the church, not just you and me, but the global church, the Father planned redemption, the Son accomplished it, the Spirit is now applying it, and so globally, you've got men and women and kids who, 
are now being uni unified globally with these barriers that are uh, being removed of culture and of socioeconomic, the class system is gone. And they are now demonstrating the wisdom of God by this rich saving grace and unity in Christ. To who, though? Who is this manifold wisdom being displayed to? It's not to the world. You and I aren't supposed to, like, be such an amazing church. We're so incredible that Kitchener-Waterloo goes, wow, you guys are so amazing. How do I get the Redeemer? No. That's like inflating our self-importance and making us the Savior. That's ridiculous. No. When you read the text, Paul says the manifold wisdom of God is being shown to the principalities and the powers of darkness. In other words, church, he saved you, he saved me, he saved believers globally, and he's showing off. He is saying right in the face of darkness, I can save anybody I want, anytime that I want, anywhere that I want. It's God's great grace and power on display. His manifold wisdom to the powers of darkness. Oh, you think you have this? Oh, you think that, okay. Oh, that's what you think? Well, well watch, I'll show you. I'll just, I'll just grab this C.S. Lewis character who's convinced that there's no God. See how funny that is? Understand? I mean, if after the service, if you were to start inviting people over for lunch or having coffee or after the, you know, just go up to somebody, anybody in this room, and be like, how did you get here? How did you, how did you come to believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead? How did you come to faith in Christ? And you started hearing everybody's stories, you'd be like, wow. God can save anybody he wants, anytime that he wants, from anywhere that he wants. It's his manifold wisdom, the power of Christ, doing this beautiful, gracious thing by the power of the Spirit. It's jaw-dropping and it's mind-blowing because the unity of the church now, even in this church, I mean, we're a little microcosm. There's only a hundred, there's only a hundred of us. But if you were to go through the backgrounds, it doesn't make sense that we're here, really. I mean, a year ago, none of you knew each other, right? It doesn't make sense that I'm up here wanting to show you Jesus from every text because six years ago, I was trying to be, you know, God's hero. You know, when I was, when I was like 20, I was like, I'm going to be a hero in the world. And then when I was 30, I was like, okay, I'm going to be God's hero. And now I'm 40 and I'm like, okay, Jesus is the hero. It doesn't make any sense that God could save a narcissist like me who grew up with radical daddy issues and, and then have him preach to, I'm not qualified to be up here doing this. It's God's grace. It's crazy. And your story is just as crazy because you're just as messed up as the preacher. You were dead in your sin too, bro. Bray, bra, bra sister, whatever. Bros and bra. How do, can we edit that out, bros and bras? I don't know. I, it's too late. I said it. It's on the internet. Uh, people of the internet? Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Anyway, back to Jesus. So this is the beauty of the manifold wisdom of what God has done. In verse 9, notice that Paul says, he uses this expression, he says, the creator of all things, and then he unfolds the manifold wisdom. Why does he just drop that phrase in there? The creator of all things, and then the manifold wisdom. Because he's connecting the creator God is the saving God. 
The God that created everything is the God that's saving everything. And Paul drops this in to prepare our, our hearts and our minds to recognize this grand, global, redemptive plan that we have been swept up into. We have been swept up into something bigger. Like I said last week, as North Americans, we, we shrink the gospel too much. We're like, what's God's plan for my life? And what, th- Paul's like, uses phrases like the creator to pull us out to be like, no, 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 that question's way too small. It's a good question, but it's too small. The big question is, what's God's plan? And when you realize you've been swept up into God's plan, all of a sudden the anxiety and the stress and the worry of your life, it diminishes really quick. Because you're like, oh my goodness. The creator God is the saving God. I'm in his hand. Nobody can take me out. I've got the assurance of my faith. He's going to provide for me and care for me because I'm his child. Woof. Wow. Enjoy God. Live to his glory. Church. It's the beauty of what his saving grace reveals and when it does. And so that's why Paul concludes this, this section with a prayer of strength for the church. You find that in verses 14 through 17. This is his second prayer. He prayed two great prayers in Ephesians. Right? This is the second of the two. And, and he's praying that they'd be strengthened in the power of the Spirit, that Christ would dwell by faith in their hearts. Right? We say funny things to help our kids understand salvation, and sometimes we say unhelpful things like, you know, Jesus is in your heart, which he isn't. He's at the right hand of the Father. Sometimes we say that to kids, and then the kids are really great because they're like, well, how does he fit in there? You know, they, you're like, okay, actually, he's, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. I should have just led with that. But what Paul is praying is that we would get get this because it's too big for our human minds to comprehend how good this is. So he prays this prayer. And so that's why in verse 16, he uses the language that God would grant you this. And again, he's not saying, fingers crossed, I hope he grants it. When you go back to the original language in the Greek, you recognize it's a, this is a perfect, completed, actual gift of grace, an actual gift of the spirit who is in you, reforming you, doing this work. This prayer that Paul is praying is happening. It's happening. His first prayer was that you would know God's love and power towards you. And this prayer is that you would know God's powers working in you. Towards you and in you. Every night I pray these prayers for my kids. I'm like, oh God, that my kids would know your love toward them and your power in them. And, and sometimes that's, that's all I got. But I'm like, they, because everything else is downstream from that. Paul knows this. That's why Paul's praying. He's like, all of the transformation, all of the everything else in our lives, it's downstream from that. And that's why the prayer is a bit of a paradox. Again, if you look at the text, he says, I pray that you would know this love that is beyond knowledge. It's a bit of a paradox. How can you know something that's unknowable? Of course, God is incomprehensible, but there's this, there's this minute comprehension we can have of just how good he is. It actually begins to melt our heart and change us and transform us. And so that's why both of these prayers are about the power. That's my prayer for my kids, and that's my prayer for you. Each week as I pray for this church, each week as I pray for you guys, when I open up that database and I go through your names and the names of your kids, and I pray for you, this is what I'm praying. I'm like, they, God, they would know this. Here's the good news. You don't roll your sleeves up and try harder to know it. The Spirit is the one who's strengthening you to know it. That's why we gather on Sunday. That's why we rest, right? God said Sundays is a me day. And the reason why God wanted Sunday to be a me day is because if, if, if you take Sundays for your own me day, you don't get to receive the beauty and the strength and the nourishment that comes by his Spirit f- for your hearts to know this. 
That's not to say that if you miss church and you know you're 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 not here and you're on holidays or you're sick or whatever that heaven shuts and God curses you. That's ridiculous. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's a graciousness to this command of gathering. It's a gracious command to come and to rest in this, that you would know this. It's Christ filling your ears as the scriptures are taught. It's Christ and his grace filling your mouth as you eat the bread and as you drink the cup. It's his grace towards you, his power towards you and in you nourishing you, strengthening you, reforming you. This is the greatness and the grace of his love. And so Paul ends with the great doxology. To him that is above and beyond anything you could hope or imagine, Paul ends with a, notice he's just started his letter, and then he ends it with, amen. Not perhaps, maybe, if you guys really work hard at getting this, it's like, amen. It's done. This is what God was up to from the beginning of time. This is what the Son has accomplished for you from the beginning of time. This is what the Spirit is doing in you now. Amen. Not perhaps. Not maybe. Not if you try harder. Not if you pray more. Not if you, you understand. Amen. This is grace of Christ coming toward you, reforming you, causing you to hate your sin and love your Savior and live to the glory of the one who saved you. We share in the mystery and the ministry and the manifold wisdom of God because the Father planned it, the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit is right here, right now, church, applying it. Let's pray.